there's lots of different ways of reading the Bible. And one way is to read it, as it were, chronologically, to take a book and to go through the whole book and um, to, to, to read, you know, what's the argument? How does one argument flow to another? And to read it like that. And that's really valid. And there's lots of aids uh, to looking at various books, lots of commentaries and concordances and that, that help us to understand it. And that really feeds our minds, which is important. Then another way is to take a short passage or a little story or a verse and just meditate on it and just chew it over and ask God to speak not only to your mind but to your spirit and, to, and for the truths to sink in. And, our, uh, and Charles Spurgeon once said um, he, would, he would rather soak his soul in a single verse of, of Scripture than I can't remember the end of the quote but, but then just <laughs> then do the other thing. And uh, um, <laughs> that was great, wasn't it? And it's on live stream. Um, and, uh, um, but another way that I love is taking characters uh, in the scriptures and looking at their stories and seeing what I can learn from these characters. And there's some amazing truths you can get. I love this method because uh, God in his wisdom uh, has put certain characters in the scripture to teach us spiritual truths. And I want to look at one of these characters and look at what spiritual truths we can learn. And this isn't going to be a full examination of this character. That would take a conference. There's just one aspect. And I'm going to want to talk about John the Baptist um, this morning, today. Uh, and we begin in Matthew chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness, the desert of Judea, and saying, repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair. And he had a leather belt round his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea. And the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe has been laid to the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now that's quite a thing, isn't it? And uh, 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 John the Baptist, uh, even though his mother Elizabeth was uh, Mary's cousin, uh, Jesus' mother, so Jesus and John the Baptist on human level were related. Uh, most uh, theologians, most scholars would say 
that uh, John's parents were of the sect or the group within Judaism called the Essenes. And they basically, many of them, lived in the desert of Judea. They made their home there. They lived uh, frugal lives, aesthetic lives. Uh, they didn't have any luxuries. And uh, we read in another place that, uh, that John, uh, you know, wore a coat, in fact, in this place, I think, made of camel skin. And, uh, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And, uh, and John was very lightly brought up in the desert. And then one day, um, he, he started to preach and to preach repentance for the Messiah was coming. And folk came from the towns and the cities in multitudes. They flocked in order to listen to him, in order to hear his message and to respond. And I wanted to, to pick a passage, that, um, a story that reflected our heat wave. And so what better than to talk about deserts and wilderness and host pipe bands uh, and all of that stuff. But, but I visited the, deserts of, the desert of Judea and it is much worse than this because in the desert of Judea, there is nowhere to hide. There is, there is no, no shelter and it is hot and the sun reflects on the white sand and it makes it feel doubly hot. It is very dry, but it is unbearable. In the summer, it is unbearable. And that's where John was brought up. And in the scripture, when, we, when it talks about desert and wilderness, uh, it, it talks often about a barren place, a dry place, an inhospitable place, to speak of those times that we feel we are in a spiritual or emotional or physical or mental desert, dry, barren, inhospitable, not comfortable at all, painful. And in the scripture, we see, I haven't got time to go through it, so often God can be found in that place where you least expect him. And for John, he was brought up there. And, and often it's in the desert times in our lives that God uses those times to refine us, to test us, and to, and, and to prepare us that we might be truly a voice rather than an echo. And John was described as a voice crying in the desert. He, he got his voice in the dry, the barren, the inhospitable place. And he had something to say. And what, what the church of Jesus needs in these days, and if we didn't know it before, we know it coming out of COVID like never before, the church needs to recover its voice, its distinctive voice, a voice that speaks to the culture, that challenges the culture, that loves the world, but loves the world too much to not speak truth, seasoned by grace to a world that is going to hell. And John, he, he got his voice. And when he started speaking, they flocked to him. They came from everywhere. And they came into the desert. They came into the difficult place. 
You know, John did not go to Jerusalem and hire the the biggest auditorium that was air-conditioned, had comfortable seating, and, and where they made sure that the service was not longer than an hour. He didn't do that. He was there, and they came. And people will go anywhere if, if they hear an authentic voice that reflects God and his truth. They will, they will travel anywhere. And do you know, he didn't need to do a publicity campaign. He didn't need to do any marketing. He didn't need to brand himself and have the, you know, the John the Baptist Ministries. Enroll. And with your subscription, you'll get a toy. No, he didn't do any of that. He was just a voice crying in the wilderness. And they flocked. And we've seen that with every revival in the history of the church. People flock to where there is authenticity, where there is reality, where God is manifestly present. You don't need to advertise a revival. John Wesley, who lived in the 18th century, um, God used him and his brother Charles and George Whitfield to bring revivals uh, both sides of the Atlantic, in the UK and in America. And uh, John Wesley rode the length and breadth of Britain and he preached the gospel. And, and people flocked to the fields. He wasn't allowed in the churches after a while. They barred him. So he said, the world is my parish. And uh, people flocked to him. And they, they, they became Christians, many of them. France had a revolution. We had a revival. And they asked John Wesley once, what's the secret to your preaching? Because uh, so many people respond. And he said, what I do is I go and stand in a field and I set myself on fire and I let people watch me burn. I love that. I go in a field, I set myself on fire and I let people watch me burn. You don't need to advertise a fire. You don't need to market a fire. And where did this come from? Where did this, where did John Wesley's zeal come from? It came, yes, from, from one night, New Year's Eve, in a place called Fetter Lane, which still exists, this narrow road in the city of London. But it also came from persecution. It came from ostracism. It came from rejection. He suddenly knew who he was. But first of all, here's the quote, and I love it. it was from, it's taken from his journal, 1st of January, 1739. He discovers what happened that night earlier on New Year's Eve, he says this, Mr. Hall, Hutching, Hitching, Ingram, Whitfield, and my brother Charles were present at our love feast in Fetter Lane with about 60 of our brethren. At three o'clock in the morning, as we continued instant in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us, insomuch 
as many cried out with exceeding joy, and many fell to the ground. When we were recovered a little, and don't you love the English understatement, when we were recovered a little from the awe and majesty, from the awe and amazement at the presence of his majesty, we cried out with one voice. We praise thee, O God. We acknowledge thee to be the Lord. And that was their moment. That was their Pentecost. That was when they were set on fire. And then he rode the length and breadth of this country, proclaiming Christ with passion. They threw, according to his journal, regularly rotten eggs and tomatoes at him. And to quote him, he said, I considered it an honor to suffer for the sake of my Savior. And many came to Christ. Many found God in those days. And we see this in revival after revival after revival. Hudson Taylor, I don't know how many of you have read any of the stories of Hudson Taylor, but God used him in amazing ways, amazing ways. He was a missionary to China, um, and, and the story's incredible. And uh, he had obstacle after obstacle. There was never any money. God provided it miraculously, regularly. Um, he had opposition uh, from other Christians. Uh, he formed a, a missionary society and uh, those that he put in place opposed him. But he kept going and he knew, he knew what he was for. My favorite is a guy called William Carey. And he became a missionary to India. And what I love about William Carey and what gives me hope is he was a total flipping failure. He was a total failure. His preaching was so boring that when he was minister of a Baptist church, it shrunk under his leadership until they sacked him. His wife, his marriage was a disaster until she ended up put into an asylum because that was the only way they needed, they knew how to deal with, with mental health issues in those days. He lost his wife. In the plague, at least two of his daughters died in the plague and he contracted a permanent skin condition that meant that his hair completely fell out. And if he was in direct sunlight, um, his skin would blister. And he ended up in e India as a missionary with that condition. And again and again, uh, no missionary society would send him out. They all rejected him. So he went out on his own. He ended up being instrumental in translating uh, the Bible into many Indian dialects, Indian languages. And he started a missionary movement that is, you know, if you go to theological colleges now, many Bible colleges, they have what they call the Carey Wing, which is their missions wing. His influence still lasts today. And at the end of his life, as he was about to die, he was in bed. He knew that there were people, including his son-in-law, who were, when he died, they were going to write his biography. And he said to his son-in-law, after I die, if anyone would want to write my story, and they would ask the question, what was Mr. Carey's greatest gift? I would like them to say, Mr. Carey's greatest gift was that he was a plodder. 
I love that. He kept going. He didn't give up. And do you know, folks, there is something about encountering opposition, encountering difficulties. I'm not saying we look for it. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's pleasant. I'm not saying it's nice. I know from experience it isn't. But when that happens, we can either turn from God and get bitter or turn to God and get better. And we can find God in the midst of that place. And when we find him, something happens to us like it did for John the Baptist. We stop becoming an echo of everyone and everything else around us and we find our voice. You know, every single Christian, every single one of us needs at some stage to work out what is it I'm prepared to die for? What is it that's a non-negotiable? What is a line I will not cross? Whatever happens, whatever the consequences, I will, that's my line in the sand. That's what I'm prepared to die for. That's what I'm prepared to give myself for. And when we know that, it gives us an authority and it gives us an authenticity that people recognize and people hear and they recognize, even if they don't like it, that God is with us. And God, God calls us to that place. You know, there's, there's such a thing as coming in the desert times when to the end of yourself and discovering that when you've come to the end of yourself, you've come to the beginning of God. There's something wonderful about that. It's like, oh my goodness, I feel I'm falling, I'm falling, I'm falling. Oh my word, underneath me are the everlasting arms. You caught me, God. That's why James says in his letter, chapter one, verse two, consider it pure joy, my dear brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, for the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. There's something wonderful and freeing about knowing I'm prepared to throw away reputation. I'm prepared to throw away advancement. I'm prepared to throw away, yes, sometimes relationships because this is where I stand. Martin Luther said, I, this is where I stand. I cannot do other. There's some, and I don't mean being aggressive. I don't mean being unkind. I don't mean being, being vindictive. I mean doing it in gentleness and kindness and love, but doing it out of conviction. And the world, believe me, is looking an authentic voice to come from the church and not merely an echo to itself. And people are looking for each one of us to speak with an authentic voice that has authority. Hudson Taylor exuded authority. William Carey, in all his weakness, exuded authority. And that's a gift. And it's a gift that's given in, shut up, in, 
in the desert times, in the tough times, in the difficult times. And the places that we have thought of as the devil's places, actually, if we, if we change our perspective and we see, we find God there. We find God there. And I've met some people who, Brother Andrew, um, who used to smuggle Bibles into the old Soviet Union and then started going to minister to terrorists and leaders of drug cartels. Crazy story. But I met him a few times in his 70s. I've been to his home. And he, he's someone who absolutely, he's burned his bridges. He is sold out. He knows what he is for. We've just, um, I've just come back from um, two of the new festivals that have started um, and taken the place of Soul Survivor, uh, DTI and Limitless. And I have loved them. And I tell you, when I went to both, it was like the burden has lifted. This is happening. We've, we've handed the baton over without dropping it. And I saw God do wonderful things. But talking to the leaders of both, they came to the edge. And I knew exactly what they were talking about. They came to the place where, where they thought, you know, we don't know, before it happened, we, we went out of money. There's too many obstacles. There's too many problems. We don't have the resources. We don't have the people. Will we survive? And they both said to me, I remember Tim, who leads Limitless, said, it got to the point where I thought, this is impossible. And at that point, I thought, but it's got to happen for the sake of the kids. I cannot give up. I cannot not let this happen. These kids need this. And so we're going to press in. And there comes a point where everything's stripped away. And you realize, I'm going to go for broke. And if we go broke, we go broke. You know, there was a time in 2000 when we did this mission in Manchester. And the money was pretty flipping tight. I think I saw Liz Bidolf here. And she could tell you exactly how much. And there was times when, and people were saying, how, how's it going to happen? And I remember, I used to say to myself, but actually I said to, to others, if we're going to go down... Let's go down in a great big blazing ball of fire trying to reach the lost than wimp away in a corner somewhere not having gone for it. Now, I know for accountants, that's not doesn't sound very good. But it's, it was like, it was my exaggerated Greek way of saying, we're not giving up. We're not, and that's what I've seen with these guys. And do you know what? They've been through the fire. And I saw at both Limitless and DTI, I saw a bunch of leaders who were totally committed to the young people, totally committed to the ministry and wanting to serve and love. And I saw the joy in their faces. We have been through the fire and look at what has come out the other side. Look at this. This is wonderful. And I've seen it again and again and again. There's a guy in our church I don't think, I think he's on holiday, but I've known him since he was um, a teenager. It's not Andy, by the way. And, uh, um, uh, and this guy, I didn't find out until he was out of school, an adult, that he was bullied mercifully at school. And he was ostracized and he was ignored and he was, and he was treated horribly and he never told anyone. 
He never told anyone. His parents didn't know. No one knew. We found out afterwards. And he went through hell at school. He went through absolute hell. He would get picked on and people picked fights with him after school nearly every day. It was hell. But now, but now he, he has his own business. He's doing incredibly successfully. He loves Jesus and he cares for others as he does his business. And, and there's a steel about him and I know where it came from. I wouldn't have wished it on him for anything, but I can see now that through the fire, God prepared him for the man that he is now. In, in the last few seconds, in, in our, my little way here, and it is a little way in comparison. When we started this church and Soul Survivor Festivals 30 years ago, 29 to 30 years ago, we're not absolutely sure, um, can't remember. Uh, but when we started in 1993, um, you know, it was, I remember our first festival uh, in Somerset, we had 1,896 young people came. We lost a fortune. Uh, St. Andrew's Chorley Wood and New Wine that launched us both lost a fortune. And uh, David Pitches, who was my boss, uh, he came down halfway through the camp. And on the last day, he sat me down and he said, I came here in order to tell you that this would be the first and last sole survivor that we can't afford to do anymore. It's cost us too much money. And it's cost us too much in resources. We, we, we're going to kill new wine. We're going to kill the church. We can't do it. I came to tell you that. But while I've been here, I've been looking around. And I see that God is here. And God is meeting with his people. And who am I to oppose God, he said. What humility from a leader, huh? Became that close to the story being very different. And when we started this church, there was 11 of us on our first uh, Wednesday night at Andy and Mary Dever's front room. There was 11 of us, and most of the other 10, most of them, not all, had been in my youth group and got to 18. And I remember thinking, how is this ever gonna get to 12? We had no idea what we were doing. And after a period of a couple of months, we, I remember we got to 17. And I was so excited. There's 17 of us. I'm going to write the book, Revival, and my part in it, Mike Pilavachi. And then the following Wednesday, there was 15, because two of them had fallen out with each other and weren't coming, and the rest were in a bad mood. And I wanted to kill myself. And I was like, oh no, it's all gone wrong. It's never going to, this is how it's going to be. And at my worst moments, remember I'm Greek, so I exaggerate. At my worst moments, in my exaggerated way, I said to God, I kept saying to God in prayer, there is only two eventualities that I will allow, Lord. Either I'm going to plant this church or I'm going to die trying. And in my exaggerated way, it was my way of saying to God, God, you've broken my heart over this. You've put unchurched young people, you've, you've done me in over it. I can't walk away. Whatever, I'd rather go down than walk away. 
there isn't a plan B. And there is something about being in that place that changes everything. God gives us a voice in the desert, just like he did John the Baptist. Let us pray that we do not waste our deserts. Last sentence. In the final chapter of Song of Songs, there is this line. The friends of the maiden say this. Who is this coming out of the desert, leaning on her lover? The purpose of the desert is that we come out leaning on the Lord who is our lover. And that applies if we're from Watford, if we're from Durban, South Africa, if we're from Paris or Geneva or Colorado Springs or even Camden Town. 